Welcome to Enduring Christianity. I'm Billy Heyer, and this is our conversation on Noah and the Flood. Today, we are going to continue our series of combing through the Bible for the purpose of specifically discussing the stories of God in which he interacts with his people through trials and testing. While trials and testings can be easily assumed as simply as just a human burden, they are these moments in which we can be transformed with God's help. So thank you, Dad, once again for joining us as being this major resource uh, that's going to walk us through these stories in the Bible and, Lord willing, give us a lot more insight than just the surface knowledge of what we previously had. Thank you, Billy. It's a joy as always to be here and to be with you. So last time we finished up with the story of Cain and Abel, and as I ended that conversation, I kind of led into the fact that we're going to be discussing the story of Noah and I, I made a little visual, I said, to uh, bring your life jackets <laughs> uh, because of Noah and the flood and all. But as I've had a week now to kind of reflect on that comment, uh, you know, it was intended for just the humor visual. But I realized just the irony of putting our hope in a physical man-made object such as a life jacket. And yeah. in truth, what saved Noah and his family was... God used a, a man-made ark, but it was ultimately what saved them was not something that was man-made. It was the word of God that forewarned them to obey him. And obeying God is ultimately what saved Noah. Amen. And it's, as you put your finger on it, the essence of coming to saving faith and salvation, which is salvation from the consequence of sin and the totality of our being, is faith. But it's a faith in something. It's not just a leap of faith and a hope that something there. We have faith in the truth of who God is and God's word. Every generation in one way or another faces difficulty, the power of Satan. And ultimately, God is triumphant. He will keep us, preserve us as we listen to him and obey his word. Power of sin ultimately is the root problem because that is what separates us from God. Because we don't believe God, we don't obey God, and we live in hostility to him. And that's what we see in taking place in the life of Noah. Before I get into this, I, I, I simply want to say as well that Jesus said in the last days, before he comes back, it will be the time like in the days of Noah. And what's interesting about what he said is that people were living ordinary lives as hmm. far as you know, eating, drinking, Partly what that is about is that their whole life was focused on this world, mm -hmm. the pleasures of physical world, like this, you know, saying goes, eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. In other words, this is all there is. Jesus said they were uh, marrying and giving in marriage. So people are reproducing or whatever. So in that sense, there's this idea or, as I said, sense that from that perspective, everybody thinks this is ordinary life. So we see this, quote-unquote, ordinary life. Now, the thing also to emphasize that Jesus was saying in that is that this is characteristic of an age where deception is mm. taken over. Mm. Because people living ordinary lives as if, you know, there's nothing wrong with us and God. They're totally deceived. And, you know, you look at the book of Revelation, you see primary characteristic of 
the devil or the serpent and says he's a deceiver of the world. So his primary means of bringing evil and leading people into sin, you know, of course, we think of it as temptations. But at root, there is deception. And deception always comes because people don't believe what God said. And so when you disconnect from God, you don't believe God, whether you're living in ignorance. And so you have no idea that this is really contrary to God, that you're living in uh, rebellion and as an enemy of God, you're deceived. And so looking at Genesis 6, we see from God's perspective what the utter depravity of what is taking place. Now, it begins with this often, to some people, a mysterious statement, where in verse 2 it says, the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. What it means, you see this in Jude and Second Peter, these are fallen angels. Sons of God is another way uh, that you see this in Job, for example. These are high-level ruling spirits that have rebelled against God they are coming to earth, and they did not stay in their proper abode. They did not stay in the boundary God had ordained for them. They were created, but in the evil of their hearts, they did not want to honor and obey God in the boundaries. And so they transgressed. Transgression is crossing the line and are manifesting in their evil desires. And so when it says saw, that doesn't mean just visual apprehension. This, again, goes back to this word of judgment. They saw, they desired. Just like going back to Eve, she saw the fruit and desired it. Now, they're spirit beings, and so part of the thing is they live through humanity to experience physical pleasures. This desire is to specifically have intercourse with women, daughters of men, and people go, well, that's weird. And, of course, it's weird, but nevertheless— <laughs> Uh, this is what it says in verse 4, they're Nephilim, which literally means fallen ones. Now, there's two things that's significant, and I mean, really, as high a level of significance as possible. Because what is happening here is a hybrid of humanity. God created human beings in his image, and for our nature to be holy the way God designed it. And here these evil spirits come, they corrupt the DNA they corrupt humanity, so they're destroying humanity in the way God created it and perverting it. Now, the second thing is, too, is that where you would think, well, this is strange, but how was Jesus born? See, people don't put these two things together. Jesus is a human name of God the Son who became incarnate by the Holy Spirit. So God the Son is spirit who then at that time, space, history, by the power of the Holy Spirit, was conceived in the womb. So the Spirit of God is acting in the womb of the Virgin Mary, and in that act, the spiritual being, God the Son, is joined now fully, his nature fully as God, now fully as a human being. And so to become the Savior and Lord, of the universe. And so these angelic beings are corrupting human nature and violating ultimately what would be only reserved for 
the Son of God in his saving of uh, those who are his. So this is what's going on here. First of all, the utter corruption, the depravity. Now, the, the next verse shows this. It's verse 3. My spirit, here's the Holy Spirit, shall not strive with man, human beings, forever, because he is also flesh. This doesn't mean just that they have bodies. This is the word for fallen humanity in whom sin has infected and indwells. And the power of sin in its nature is hostility toward God, Romans chapter 8, verse 7. The mind of the flesh, fallen humanity, is hostility toward God. Nevertheless, the Spirit of God is working, seeking to convict in one way or another to confront. There is a striving, a wrestling for rule. The Holy Spirit is not being able to rule there in rebellion against God. Now, how does that rebellion come out? Well, it goes on down, verse 4, the culture of the day. It says the Nephilim uh, were the mighty men of all the men of renown. Now, what's significant about this is that these were the heroes of that age. Making clarification, the heroes yeah. of the day are, yeah. are not just humans. They've The humans have made Nephilim, yeah. these fallen angels yeah. who have come to live amongst them, their hero. Yeah, now see, people might think, well, that's strange, but just wake strange up. Strange continues, yeah. <laughs> yeah, because, you know, what are the movies? you got all these hybrid beings uh, now, you know, part man, part God, Thor, or whatever else. He's part deity, part, you know, a god. Yeah. Or you have the Transformers, these people that are, you know, have these spiritual gifts or whatever you want to call them, these gifts that they have. So here is that idea in our culture through the media. Now, Moving on to verse 5, it says, the Lord saw. Now, here again is that word saw. Here's a, not just a visual apprehension, but a assessment and judgment. Saw that the wickedness of man was great on the earth. Now, here's the manifestation. They're living in rebellion against God, and the evil, the wickedness, the sin, the depravity, iniquity of the, the human heart is being manifested. Now, what's very important is that the word wickedness, the root of it is just simply evil. That's what it literally means. The evil of man was great on the earth. And then it says how horrible it was is that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And now here, the next verse is that God is sorrowful that he is created man, the heart of God is grieved. And so God says, then I will blot out man uh, whom I created from the face of the earth. And verse 8, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now what's happened here, again, we see this, these people living ordinary life, they're, the culture is so completely corrupt and being corrupted, the power of the Satan and his ruling spirits are more and more taking over. The lifestyle is evil and it's corrupt. Verse 11 then goes on and it says, Now the earth was corrupt in the sight of God, and the earth was filled with violence. Now the whole time of filling up is God's patience, God's grace, God's uh, withholding his judgment. But as it continues to fill up, it comes to that place in God's sovereign judgment where God says, that's enough. 
And so now I'm going to bring judgment. In one sense, you can say God says there's no more hope for what's going on. Uh, they're not going to repent. They're not a rebellion. And this is where the world is now. See, God has patiently waited all this time. And even as we see, he says in verse 3 of chapter 6, there's only going to be 120 years left. So he sets the limit. Just like Jesus is going to come back, there will come a time when, okay, that's it. It's too far gone. The only thing that will, quote unquote, save this world from utter destruction, what Jesus said, because no flesh would survive. Jesus coming back to earth to intervene. And so here in the time of Noah, God has said, you know, and again, it's eternal God. <laughs> it lives forever, 120 years, which is to him a blip on the screen, but to us uh, fairly long. But nevertheless, he says, this is the limit. All right, there's going to be 120 years, and then I'm going to destroy the world. Now, we know also is that God's intent in this, while he's going to bring judgment upon basically everybody but Noah and his family. He intends to continue the human race, those made in his image, who were born from Adam, to be saved through the line of Noah. And this is where verse 8 says, Noah found favor in the eyes of the Lord. God then goes on, as we uh, see in chapter 6, where God tells him, and he gives him, again, the pretext. Verse 13, God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me. Now, see, again, this is interesting. We might think the end. Well, this is the end, you know, uh, the end of story. The highlight is now that the credits are going to be rolling because it said the end of the movie. But God is saying the end is now coming. Got 120 years. And he says the end has come before me. And that's a sense of judgment that he is a sovereign judge now considering and making he has decided. For the earth is filled with violence, and behold, I'm about to destroy them with the earth. So he goes on, he tells them to make an ark. So Noah then is commanded to make this ark. So you have the whole earth who God wants to destroy, except for, for one man and his family. He's the only one. Correct. The only one. I'm just trying to imagine living, you know, it's right. so hard to not join society's ways because that's right. what's around you. That's what your friends are doing. Everyone you know does it. It's, well, they're doing it. So I guess that's normal. It, it, so he was the only one who stayed steadfast to living out a life that honored God in his life. That would be a trial in its own, you know, being surrounded by everyone. Correct. Who was opposite and therefore also, I mean, the lure was there presently because right. that's what lured all these other people. But so Noah and his family not only have other people doing it, but the lure of Satan is there so strongly that he has correct. to resist that trial in order that's to continue correct. to obey God. Yeah. That's, I can't even imagine what that kind of trial would be like in real life. It's easy just to hear the story of the facts. But to really put myself there and to imagine the, the emotions of that trial, uh, to stay yeah. steadfast against the lies. Think about, in this sense, how much of a hero, by the grace of God, Noah is. I also think of, you know, a hymn, if you want to say that, 
that's often sung. I don't think it's sung too much anymore, at least in the United States and comfort America. But it uh, says, I have decided to follow Jesus. Mm-hmm. I have decided to follow Jesus. And then there's a verse, though, none go with me, yet I will follow. Mm-hmm. Well, there it is. Noah, yeah. Say it. Though none go with me. I'm all alone. I'm the only one. Well, that's what Noah did. Ultimately, it's what Jesus did in Gethsemane. He was the only one. Nobody was there. Mm-hmm. Nobody helping him, encouraging him, coming alongside. Come on, hang in there, Lord. Uh, we know that you you got it going. No, they're all asleep. Everybody, like you said, this is how evil. This is a world filled with evil. He's in the flood of overwhelming evil. The whole world is now drowned in it. So God is going to bring his judgment of water, which will not only kill, but it becomes, as the New Testament says, a symbol of water washing away our sins, you know, baptism. And so, which is ultimately the blood of Jesus. So the flood is, first of all, judgment, judgment upon evil. But God has to preserve this one individual. So here we see the power of God graciously sustaining preserving Noah, because Noah found grace. He found favor. And so grace is not just simply God's unearned uh, choice and attitude. Grace is also a power. You know, we see this in the New Testament where Paul says, grace to you. These are already Christians. They've already know the grace of God by which we stand, but grace is power. And so here, how does Noah do this? Well, you know, he does it because he believes God. He does it because he's right with God. He does it because the grace of God is continuing to sustain him, to preserve his heart, to keep him. We see also, for example, in Second Peter, where it says that uh, he was a preacher of righteousness or a herald of righteousness. We can imagine the persecution uh, that, w- that was against him. But nevertheless, he was speaking the truth because his heart and conscience were absolutely bound to God, to the truth of God. So when I imagine, you know, what Noah had to go through, a lot of times we bring up the story of Noah, probably most people think about, man, how did he do the physical labor of that boat? It took him so long and all the work that it took, you know, physical labor, which would all be great questions and curiosity and respect, you know, for someone to complete a project like that. But really the greatest thing he undertook and had to endure was living a godly life and being the only one for, we have at least 120 years. We can also, in one way, assume that Shem, Ham, and Japheth, you know, were his His family. Yes. His family who were living in his household. These sons, in one way or another, are helping to build this really enormous vessel an ark that will be floating <laughs> zoo uh, in many ways, putting it together, uh, putting all the rooms in, the different floors. Uh, God gave him basic outline of the design. Exact and outline, the, correct? Exact it, measurements. Well, yeah, we would say that, you know, the, the dimensions, exactly. He didn't give him the interior decorating as such. But, but there were certain specific measurements that were exact, correct, in the recording? Absolutely. Yeah, which yes. goes back to, you know, you following God, you 
You don't well, have permission to kind of wander off however you deem is good enough. It, there's no, when something's perfect and holy, it is exact, <laughs> right? Correct. To to no. to wean off from perfect and holy would to no longer be exact. Well, the other thing is that if, if Noah said, well, this doesn't make sense to me, I'm going to make adjustment, the ark would have sunk, all right? Because the dimensions that God gave, actually, uh, maritime scholars and other uh, people who understand, you know, the dynamics of water and how vessels in one way would float in it, the dimensions are perfect for a Buoyancy. vessel floating in water. Mm-hmm. And maintain buoyancy exactly. So, what your point is is very important. Noah's, and he's certainly not a nautical engineer. He has no experience. <laughs> who knows what's going to go? You know, you might have you know well, a little boat going down a river, but yeah. nobody knows the flood and how big this vessel is going to be uh, because it's enormous. The key thing here is God gave him exact dimensions, which he obeyed. Because if he hadn't obeyed them everything would have been lost as well. And so his faith also is demonstrated in this time of building the way God told him, according to the word of God, of what is going to happen. And Hebrews says that, of course, the whole area of Hebrews 11 is faith, but it says that in reverence, reverent fear of God, he obeyed God. So there's the fear of God, in other words, because you know who God is, you know what God said he's going to do, and he will do it. So if you don't obey, uh, that's the fear of God, you know you're going to pay the consequences. So Noah believed God about this flood coming, and in response, he made the ark. And just his faith to build an ark, but to also have faith that something was going to happen which had never happened before. I mean, like, if I felt like I was told from God, hey, don't go into that building because it's going to fall down, I've seen buildings fall down before. There's evidence of that happening, you know? But a flood's never happened, <laughs> right? I, time, there's nothing, you know, they say hindsight's right. twenty twenty. There's right. no twenty twenty vision here, you know? Right. It, it, it truly is an act of faith to believe something you haven't seen. That is faith. Yeah. The yeah. parallel for us, I mean, we've seen floods, so we can imagine that. We have, yeah. But for us, the parallel of ultimately of not seeing is death. You know, what's beyond death? God said, trust in my son Jesus. Jesus said, believe in me and you'll have eternal life. Well, we haven't died. Uh, we haven't gone to the other side, so to speak, passed on and then come back. And so we believe God. We believe that Jesus rose from the dead. We have evidence of this fact by the fact that Jesus rose from the dead. Our hope is his death pays for our sins, but it's not that he's dead and in in the grave. Our hope is for positively eternal life, that because Jesus rose, we will also rise. And so the flood comes like death, but in the very interesting thing, what raised the ark was raised up by uh, the water of the flood. And so being in the ark, which is the symbol of Christ, everything in the ark was saved. Nothing was lost. So everything in Christ is saved. Everything outside of Christ is destroyed. 
God's wrath and judgment comes upon them. They die. So ultimately, what we're believing is not just simply a flood in this world, but death. And the means is Christ himself to eternal life. And so the very, like the water that raised the ark and, and saved it, so death itself no longer is punishment for us, but it's the gateway into eternal life and the greater presence of God. So what would be the main moral uh, of reflection uh, that we can take from this story to apply to our own life as an essential understanding with our relationship with God? Well, in answering that, I'd say that there is a common principle in every test, ultimately. And the ultimate principle common is to believe God, God's word, and obey him. The surrounding culture, particular temptations, particular trials are different at every time in history. But nevertheless, it is a trial, a test. And we are to believe God, his word, and obeying his God's word through all the pressures, the temptations, the persecution. As Jesus said, in the world, you will encounter tribulation, so affliction, suffering, but be of good cheer or rejoice. I have overcome the world. So the promise is not just of the wrath of God coming, but also the salvation of God through it. So here is fundamentally Noah enduring because he has faith. He is persevering. This is, uh, by the way, one of the themes, for example, of Hebrews, that the true believer is not manifested in just simply a person who professes, but a person who perseveres. And so the true faith of Noah was tested. And Noah believed God and obeyed God. And so the fundamental thing is do what God tells you to do. Believe God, trust God through all the trials. Ultimately, as was mentioned, the ultimate test and trial is death. But that as we are in Christ, he will save us and give us a new beginning, a eternal life forever and ever uh, in his presence as he makes ultimately the new heaven and new earth. One takeaway that I have received from looking back on this story is that as I look at my society now, it is filled with alluring purpose to deceive me and to telling me what is right and wrong. And that's why I realize and want to encourage others to know the word of God, because only God determines what is good and what is right. And as Noah was following God, he was surrounded by a society of people who, not only people, but of fallen angels in human form, uh, the devil deceiving and being part of the society of trying to be deceived and being told and convinced what was right and wrong, which is not what God was saying was right and wrong. And it's so important to understand the word of God so that we can know that we are enduring. Because if we follow the ways of the world, uh, we become under the judgment of these people like they were in the flood. But if we follow the word of God, which we first must know, then we can be dedicated and endure it in the face of society. And it's very attractive lures, honestly. 
So thank you, Dad, for this reminder to, no matter what, to know God's word and to follow it. And mm-hmm. even in the face of the devil himself and even maybe our friends and family or fellow socialites trying to convince us otherwise that God's way is the only way that leads to life. Amen. And like that old song, I've decided to follow Jesus. If none go with me, yet I will follow. That's a wonderful way to end this series. I thank you very much for taking the time of allowing us to discuss God's Word and to have a greater understanding of how important it is to follow the Word that He has gifted and graced us with to be able to follow. Thank you, Billy. Love you. God bless you. We want to thank you and everyone who has been listening for spending your time with us. Because how you spend your time is how you spend your life. If you are a listener and would like to share a story from your life, email us at EnduringChristianity at gmail.com. I'm Billy Heyer, encouraging you to endure in all circumstances. Have a blessed day.